and we're rolling. Shout out to all the Fagos, Lesbigays, Small Town Gomers, and Tampooners out there. This is a place where we hope you'll feel safe, salty, and you'll always have someone to give you a tampon, or even a wetty when you need one. That's so gross. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hello, hello, and welcome to Skeleton Closet, a podcast at the intersection of queerness and horror. I'm Shannon. And I'm Jake. And today we will be talking about a 2009 bomber, which is Jennifer's Body. It is directed by Karen Kusama, written by Diablo Cody, and it stars Megan Fox as Jennifer and Amanda Seyfried as her best friend, needy it also features adam brody and johnny simmons what were your uh what were your sort of initial thoughts on this movie there shannon so i i went into this movie with like zero context i didn't look up a summary of it i didn't watch the trailer i had never seen it before i don't even think i saw the trailer on like tv when it was airing in 2009 so like The only thing I knew about it was that Megan Fox was in it and that she's hot and that there was some lesbianism. But like, to sum up my feelings about Jennifer's body, I found it to be delightfully unexpected. Like, for some reason, I had expected the movie to be like a stalker-esque film where Amanda Seyfried is like obsessed with stalks and eventually murders Megan Fox. And... The movie wasn't even <laughs> close to that. No. Like, and uh, yeah, in, instead, Jennifer's body turns out to be like a very poignant critique of early 2000s emo culture. And I think it really gets to the heart of what it means to be best friends forever. What about you, Jake? I absolutely love this movie. This is my second time seeing it. I saw this one for the first time this past summer. Um, at some point, this podcast has just become me rewatching movies that I saw in the last year that I liked. Um, but I, I remember as well, like hearing about this movie when it came out back in 2009, but I never actually saw it back then. I had my own sort of like preconceived notions uh, about mm. what I thought it was about. Um, but yeah, I feel like I also was aware that like Megan Fox was in it and was hot in it because that was kind of how Megan Fox was marketed at the time. Um, yeah. But yeah, like you said, I think it's a really poignant critique and satire of teen culture. It strikes at the heart of a lot of really relevant problems and issues uh, without ever feeling really heavy handed or preachy. It doesn't take itself too seriously and it delivers a lot of laughs as well. It's it's another one of those movies that's kind of more of a horror comedy, Um, Mm. definitely more of a horror comedy. It's I would say it's more funny than than it is scary. but it's definitely got a lot of sort of meat on its bones for what we want to talk about when it comes to the themes of this podcast, the intersection of horror and queerness and whatnot. Um, We do want to include a bit of a content warning here. This is a request that we've been getting from uh, our lovely listeners, and and we do appreciate uh, feedback like this, but uh, we just want to let everyone know that we'll sort of be delving into the topics of sexual assault and addiction. It's it's maybe not something that's necessarily 100% um, present in the plot but the themes sort of have to do with uh with those sorts of themes and we want to make sure that you're aware of that before we dive in yeah we definitely have some sexual violence uh in this movie in particular and with that shall we 
get into the summary. Absolutely. Um, do you want to do you want to kick us off? Oh, yeah, I would love to. So, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, welcome <laughs> to Devil's Kettle, Minnesota. It is your average rural American town. It's named after a unique feature of their landscape, a waterfall that cascades down to a whirlpool hole that goes deep into the earth. Our story centers around Anita Lesnicki, nicknamed Needy, because of the relationship she has with the most popular girl in school, Jennifer Check. Needy and Jennifer grew up together, best friends since they played in the sandbox, although the two couldn't be more opposite. Needy is a good student, she doesn't swear, and she has a wholesome boyfriend and is pretty nerdy. Jennifer, on the other hand, is crass, promiscuous, and sexy as all-out hell. The girls wear matching BFF necklaces, a silent promise of their long-lasting friendship. So one night, Jennifer decides she wants to go to a concert, so she drags Needy out to the local dive bar. Uh, The band Low Shoulder is playing, and Jennifer has the hots for the lead singer. Uh, Needy can tell that these indie boys are a bunch of slime balls, but nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, rather, Jennifer is enamored. As the band plays, the bar spontaneously catches fire. The girls manage to escape, but the bar burns down with several people inside. Uh, In the parking lot, Needy and Jennifer run into the lead singer of Low Shoulder, Nikolai Wolf. He invites Jennifer into the band's van, and she goes against Needy's protestations. Uh, Needy watches as Jennifer gets into the van, leaving her in the clutches of the band to presumably go have some post-traumatic sex. Uh, Needy goes home to call her boyfriend Chip and tell him about the fire. Um, the phrase post-traumatic sex <laughs> is wild. I've heard of post-traumatic sex, but this is ridiculous. Uh, right? I, I thought it, I thought it really suited, um, what happened because literally like girl walks out of the bar. She is fucking traumatized as shit from this fire. And the dude of the lead band is like, Hey, come hang out in my van. And she's like totally numb to the experience. So there's a lot Whatever. of terrific lines in this movie, and we'll we'll talk more about them later. But yeah, the, when he's trying to get her to come to the van, and he says, "I think I think you need to be in a safe place right now, and right now that is my van." <laughs> so fucking creepy, dear yeah. God! Like, ugh. So, unbeknownst to needy, Jennifer is not having sex, but is being driven out into the woods. At the sight of the Devil's Kettle waterfall, the band members tie Jennifer down and prepare for a ritual. Believing that Jennifer is a virgin, (laughs) she's totally not, (laughs) Mm -mm. they intend to sacrifice her to the devil in exchange for fame in the rock world. Nikolai pulls out an internet printout of a sacrifice ritual, reads it aloud, and proceeds to butcher Jennifer with a bowie knife. He tosses the knife into the whirlpool and it vanishes from sight. The ritual, however, did not go entirely as planned. After the band abandons Jennifer, she awakes from death. Because she was not a virgin, she became possessed by a demon during the ritual. So after Needy calls Chip, she's alerted to a presence in her house, and it turns out to be none other than Jennifer, covered in blood and looking like absolute shit. Uh, Jennifer tries to eat a roast chicken from Needy's fridge, but she ends up vomiting black bile all over Needy and the kitchen floor. 
Uh, Jennifer goes to bite Needy in the neck, but decides against it and absconds without telling Needy what had actually happened to her. She's just kind of freaked out that her best friend showed up and <laughs> did all that shit. Um, the next day at school, Jennifer appears perfectly fine and fabulous, and she acts as though nothing happened. Um, but the school and Needy are in mourning. The, a lot of students died in the fire. Um, in the football field behind the school, Jennifer seduces Jonas, the football captain, by playing on his grief over losing his best friend in the fire. Uh, while hooking up in the woods, Jennifer totally disembowels Jonas, leaving his body to be found by a teacher. Uh, meanwhile, Low Shoulder are praised as heroes, and a rumor circulates that they actually helped people escape from the fire. This rumor is false. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the band's popularity grows, and one of their songs has become the anthem of Devil's Kettle. Through the trees, Through I will the find trees. you. <laughs> I thought we were going to sing that together. Oh, oh, wow. Did you practice? No. <laughs> 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 through, through the, the trees <laughs> I will, I find, will you. find you I will heal the ruins <laughs> left inside you cause, cause I'm still I'm here, still here <laughs> breathing now breathing now I'm still here <laughs> breathing now until I'm set free go quiet through the trees a month has now passed since the fire Jennifer has gone from looking radiant to looking drab and tired. She accepts a date with Colin Gray, a punky goth kid who's friends with Needy. Jennifer gives him the address of an abandoned, run-down townhouse and stages the place with candles and music. When Colin arrives, Jennifer jumps his bones and proceeds to slaughter him, drink his blood, and eat his flesh. At the same time, Needy is having sex with her boyfriend, Chip, and senses that something is wrong. While driving home, she almost hits a bloody Jennifer with her car. Uh, Needy is surprised at home to find Jennifer in her room already, wanting to have a sleepover. Uh, Jennifer seduces Needy, and the girls make out for a little bit. Uh, they soon Ooh. stop. <laughs> they soon stop, and Needy confronts Jennifer over her recent behavior. Uh, this is when Jennifer reveals to Needy what happened after the fire when she left with the band. Uh, Jennifer also reveals the supernatural healing abilities she seems to have gained and how she's murdered three boys already to reinvigorate herself. Uh, Needy kicks Jennifer out, no longer trusting her so-called best friend. The next day at school, Needy does research in the occult section of her library. She discovers that Jennifer has become a succubus and must feed on humans to become strong. She discovers that in order to kill the demon, she must stab it through the heart while it is weak. Needy shares this information with her boyfriend Chip and warns him to stay away from Jennifer, but he doesn't believe her. To protect Chip, Needy breaks up with him and tells him to stay away from the upcoming Spring Fling dance, where she's sure Jennifer will have a feeding frenzy. Chip, of course, does not heed Needy's warning and walks over to the dance. On his way, he is intercepted by Jennifer, who tells him Needy was cheating on him, then seduces him and leads him to an abandoned swimming pool. Jennifer is in the midst of feeding on Chip when Needy hears his screams and arrives to fight Jennifer off. She and Chip manage to fend Jennifer off, impaling her on a pool skimmer. Jennifer then manages to get away, and Chip dies in Needy's arms. 
So at this point, Needy is, needless to say, pretty pissed. She arms herself with a box cutter and breaks into Jennifer's room. They have a bit of a scrap and Jennifer bites Needy in the neck. Needy rips off Jennifer's BFF necklace and throws it to the ground. Uh, at that point, Jennifer stops fighting back and Needy stabs her in the chest, to which, uh, Je- <laughs> to which Jennifer says, my tit. Uh, Needy and Jennifer's body are are discovered by Jennifer's mother. For killing Jennifer, Needy is locked away in a prison asylum. And this is actually where we first meet Needy. There's sort of a a framing device where we meet her at the very beginning while she's in prison, while she's recounting the story of how she came to be incarcerated. Uh, Needy reveals that after surviving the bite from Jennifer, uh, a bite from a demon, essentially, she has gained some of Jennifer's powers. With her powers, Needy levitates and rips the bars off her cell and escapes into the night. Walking a lone road, Needy finds a stream of water in which sits a bowie knife. Ah, this must be where the water from the whirlpool exits. So Needy retrieves the knife that she knows to have been Jennifer's murder weapon. She proceeds to hitch a ride into the city and seeks out the band Low Shoulder. The movie concludes with found footage of carnage in a hotel room and a bloody crime scene of the murdered members of Low Shoulder. I feel like I want to talk about that right now because it might not ever become relevant again for the rest of it. But that's all, yeah, Yeah. during the end credits, it's all like still shots and like weird little fragments of found footage and... Like the movie kind of ends and the credits roll and you're like, wait, is is the band going to get away with this? Or, okay, no, she's going to go find them. And then it's like, all right, I guess we're just going to end on her being like, I'm going to go find the band and kill them. And we're not actually going to get that closure. And then we very much do. And we even see the lead singer um, like stabbed with the Bowie knife itself, which just like, it it felt like it it was almost like a uh, delayed gratification thing. We thought we weren't going to get this revenge. And then we very much did. And it was like, nice i was worried right like that's why for me like my overall impression of this movie is delightfully unexpected because like i like as i was watching out like the movie and the spring fling dance like the band comes to play for the spring fling dance and i'm like oh shit like jennifer's gonna show up with her demon powers and she's gonna murder the band on stage And when that didn't happen, I was like, okay, what the fuck is going on here? Like, why did Low Shoulder come to play their spring fling if, like, Jennifer's not even (laughs) going to show up? Like, what the fuck? Um, But, like, I, I was so happy, like, at the end of this movie. I was like, oh, okay, like, Needy's, like, gonna go hitch a ride and, like, find the band. Cool, we can, like, leave it like that. But no, 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 no. They gave that full satisfaction like full retribution and that just like mm, mm, like what a good way to tie off a movie like that just i don't know it was it was so it really was just satisfying for this like douchey fucking pop punk indie band to like get their comeuppance of like this this is what happens this this is what happens when you fuck with teenage girls, man. They will Absolutely. fuck your shit up. They will fuck you up, man. No question. No question. Yeah, um, don't don't mess with teenage girls. Uh-uh. <laughs> that's the lesson. That's the moral of this movie is don't mess with teenage girls and their best friends. It might as well be. And demons also. 
Oh, yeah, and demons. And demons. <laughs> Secondarily yeah. to teenage girls. The second yeah. scariest thing in this movie are, are the demons. Um, I wanted to talk about just some of our favorite things from the movie and, and things that we, you know, wanted to not uh, go unsaid. Um, one of my favorites was just, like, the nostalgia. So this movie came out in 2009. We turned 13 uh, in 2009, and we entered high school the following year in 2010. Oh, so this is, like this is kind of our time, like our era. It's like maybe a few years before us, but we're kind of like, we're kind of there. Also this being 13 years ago, we were 13 back then. So like 2009 is the halfway point in our lives at this point. Oh, Um, shit. Right. Um, Like 2009 is only 13 years ago, but I was really surprised to see how nostalgic this felt. Um, I think just Mm -hmm. things move so fast that 13 years ago feels like, quite a while ago culturally right like a lot has happened in the culture since then this was like the era of like scene kids and and emo culture and all that kind of stuff um (laughs) there's so many like things that are like they're just they're just pop culture references back then but watching it now it's like oh what a callback like you know zach efron is referenced in the very first scene as like the height of pop culture um, Needy's in prison and she's like, I get more letters than Santa Claus and Zach Efron combined. And it's like, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Zach, Ef- that's like, that's a while ago. Cause now he's the dude who hosts that like down to earth show on Netflix. Um, oh, shit. <laughs> there's he like, is. yeah. Uh, there's like fallout by uh, fallout by <laughs> fallout back, by oh yeah. Go to Newfoundland. Back, yeah, going back to Newfoundland Labrador with that one. Um, there's fallout boy posters on Jennifer's wall. Uh, Chip's haircut. Chip's got like oh, this God. very specific, like, I don't know, half the dudes at my middle school had this exact haircut, myself included. I said that in the Discord. I did like a live watch of this on Discord. Just seeing that haircut was like, <laughs> transported me back to 2009 with that one. I If I can dig up my like grade nine class picture, I'll post it in the Discord because I, I swear to God, I had that like, haircut. Straight um, up, it's the Justin Bieber hair flick yes haircut. yeah that's like, the one like bangs but then yeah. like the rest of your hair is like shaggier around your ears for some reason like why was oh, that yeah. the shit why was that ever the right? shit like i had that haircut too i get it i get it like <laughs> we, were, we were all just like shaggy coconut heads like, yeah uh, um uh, colin style too like he had kind of this like billy joe armstrong haircut thing going on and then he was like wearing for some reason like a collared shirt and a skinny tie with like a purple hoodie. Um, just like too many things going on. Okay, um, Colin was the fashion king of was. this fucking film. Yeah. So good. He was the dude that like, yeah, like I was trying to model my style after dudes like him back then, you know? Absolutely. Like, yeah. And then, like, in the scene where he gets murdered, he goes, he, like, wanders into an abandoned house that Jennifer set up for him, and she's got music playing, and the song playing is I Wanna Love You by Akon. Like, (laughs) I see you winding, grinding up on the floor. Like, uh, just that song took me back. Like, what happened to Akon? Where'd he go? Where are they keeping him? He's in Snoop Dogg's basement. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's a hell of an assertion. Hell of an accusation there, Shannon. <laughs> I see you, Snoop Dogg. I see you. Damn. All right. <laughs> uh, and, like, my other favorite thing about this movie was just the the amount of made-up language 
uh, and like banger one-liners. Like I mentioned that the, the movie is very funny, but like they managed to, I don't know if the teen slang that they use is entirely made up or if it's just hyper-specific regional, but you, do you remember this of like being back in high school and like there was specific slang that was like maybe specific to your school? Like you're not really sure oh, if yeah. anyone used it outside of your school or your specific like team or club or whatever you happen to be a part of. But like there's when they're at the concert at the bar in the beginning, uh, Chris Pratt, who is in this movie, by the way, says like they look like a bunch of fagos. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked that Chris Pratt was in this. Like, and he's this just... is like a pre Parks and Rec Chris Pratt too. So like he's not like a known. Uh... Yeah, he's a baby. Yeah, yeah, he's just a little guy. Um, pre pre cult pre like homophobic church <laughs> like whatever. Um, wow. At one point, someone tells Needy that that she should stop staring at Jennifer because she she's comes off like a total lesbian gay. Um, <laughs> which like I don't know like the first of all the casual homophobia right like harkens me right oh, back to yeah. our own small town high school. But also the way that it's played in this movie is like, you can tell that it's being played for laughs to a sympathetic audience. Like, like it's not inviting you to revel in homophobia. It is inviting you to laugh at casual teenage ignorance and homophobia. homophobia. Not homophonia. Um, <laughs> just love words that sound the same. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I want when Jennifer comes into Needy's house and is like, I'm coming into your room. You better not be tampooning in there. <laughs> um, she calls boys that she thinks are hot salty. She's like, yeah, oh, the lead singer is so salty, which like that confused me both times watching this movie because I forgot about it. And like salty when I was a teenager meant like you were, um, you were, you were like pissed off. Yeah. You were yeah. upset. You were, like, cause your face is salty with tears. Whereas, like, for Jennifer, she's like, oh, it means they're sexy. And yeah. it's like, what? That's not what salty means, honey. She also, like, she's got a lot of great terminology when she gets turned on. Like, she says to Colin when she's seducing him at one point, you give me such a wetty. Uh, <laughs> which is... <laughs> that just is totally unnecessary. so uncomfortable. Like... Yeah. <laughs> uh, she also tells him, she, like, pulls down his pants and looks at his, like, I guess boxered form and she's she, she says nice hardware ace which is just like what a what a what a line what a banger um the dudes from the band are like absolutely hilarious too like oh god they're amazing adam brody is so funny in this because he's just such a douchebag the character like obviously he's the villain of the movie i suppose one of them secondary villain main villain i don't yeah, know yeah the yeah the first villain yeah but like there's there's a when they're doing the ritual one of his bandmates is like having second thoughts and he like pins him to a tree and is like do you want to be a loser forever or do you want to be rich and awesome like that guy from maroon five (laughs) (laughs) he also mentions like the amount of competition there is in like the indie music scene he's like you know how many indie bands there are out there there's so many of us and we're all so cute (laughs) it's impossible (laughs) to stand out so (sighs) good um patrick Starr's voice actor is in this movie and he is like the father of the the football captain who gets disemboweled and he has this line where he's like screaming out to the woods because he believes that his son's killer is out there and he's like i will cut off your balls and nail them to my door like those door knockers that rich people have like the lion-shaped ones 
those will be your balls. <laughs> and he's like screaming, crying out to the woods. And it's in Patrick's voice. There's so no many just like it sounded genius. sounded so familiar. Yeah. I looked it up. I was like, is that Patrick? And then I went on the IMDb and I was like, yeah, it very much is. There's so many just wow. terrific lines in the movie. I don't yeah. Know. Like you've got one of my favorite fucking lines, which was like needy when she's like about to go fight Jennifer and she's like, St. Jude patron saint of hopeless causes, please give me the power to crush this bitch. She like crosses herself as she says it. Like how, how many so Catholics good. have said a prayer using the word bitch? <laughs> I Probably hope more than every I single one of them. Oh, every Catholic? <laughs> every goddamn Catholic. Um, Probably the best line in the movie, or maybe the most memorable one, is like, uh, during like the final fight between uh, Chip and Needy and Jennifer, Jennifer like kind of like flies, hovers, levitates up above the scene and kind of like floats away. And Chip is like, she can fly now? And Needy says, she's just hovering. It's not that impressive. <laughs> and Jennifer just goes, God, do you have to undermine everything that I do? <laughs> yes. Yes, she does. And, like, that yeah, really that plays point. into the best friendship, like, dynamic, which I will be talking about later. Uh, and then, like, the last two that I had written down is they stab uh, Jennifer with a pool skimmer, and the first words out of Jennifer's mouth are, you got a tampon, which so funny, because she wants to tampoon it up. Um, <laughs> and then lastly, uh, during, like, the final, final confrontation, um, Needy brings out a box cutter with which she intends to murder her best friend. And uh, Jennifer says, do you buy all your murder weapons at Home Depot? God, you're butch. Like, after they've already made out earlier in the movie. So good. So good. How are you going to be homophobic to the woman you've already made out with? Right? Right? My God. Or maybe, like, uh, yeah, I don't even know. Maybe that's a compliment. I'm not sure. But, like... Maybe. I, I mean, I would buy all my murder weapons at Home Depot. And like, if someone was like, God, you're so butch, I'd be like, oh my God, thank you. Wow. Yeah. What? Okay, so that I, I spent a whole bunch of time like listing my favorite lines. What are your favorite things about the movie? Uh, So like, I, I just like love how campy this movie is. Like, it is just like, so fun. I did not expect it to be this fun and like it makes so many stupid jokes like um Colin like asks Jennifer out and is like oh hey like do you want to like go watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show and I'm like oh my god of course this like goth emo guy is like asking out the hot girl to like go see Rocky Horror and she's like no I don't really like boxing movies and I'm like (laughs) oh god like beautiful priceless exchange between a popular girl and an alternative boy and like i jake i don't know if you know aquamarine but like when jennifer okay when jennifer fucking counters that offer and is like why don't you like come over and watch this movie aquamarine it has like this chick that's like half sushi or whatever i was like dear god like aquamarine is the most jennifer movie like it's a fluffy rom-com it's starring sarah paxton emma roberts and jojo like i it's it's a mermaid <laughs> movie about like a girl like a, 
a mermaid who like comes out of water and like on land she has legs when she touches water she has a mermaid tail and like these girls are trying to hook her up with a hot dude it oh. is it, yeah like it is <laughs> it is like quintessential early 2000s rom-com like vibes and i <laughs> i burst out laughing when they brought that up in the movie like i i love that like all of the interactions between jennifer and colin fucking killed me like when she's got him alone in the fucking abandoned house and like colin's like he sees like rats like scutter across the ground and he just looks so disgusted and like frightened and she's like what i thought boys like you like this kind of thing like don't you and i was like 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 vermin and death (laughs) (laughs) i was like oh my god good job jennifer like turning that like girls like you on its head and being like boys like you and Mm -hmm. like we've we're starting to get like a a theme here with our like maybe it's just early 2000s movies but like go off supernatural research scenes like yeah go off <laughs> we have fucking bella in twilight sarah in the covenant and now needy like these girls need an occult research club that spans 2006 2008 and 2009 and i i want a movie about them like that just like maybe that's sabrina the teenage witch like maybe that's just what i want <laughs> but i like that they all specifically have like uh because she says something like i went through the occult section five times and this is all i could find and chip is like our school library has an occult section and her response is she's like it's really small which i i absolutely love a movie where yeah like they they read like five books and it happens to have details on the exact thing that they that they defined love it and like it always zooms in on the important words like for sarah it was spiders 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 (laughs) and like for this one it was like demon succubus demon eats flesh and like oh god so good and like right along with that i think my like favorite like line in the entire movie was who cares about the god dang dance chip like needy is just she's so emphatic like she's so angry like chip just wants to go to the dance with her and she's like god damn it chip you're gonna die if you go to that dance and was she right she was sure as hell fucking right because like the aesthetic moment (laughs) when you see jennifer in her like white ball gown in this like disgusting like overgrown mossy swampy like pool abandoned pool house and like needy in her fucking ridiculous hot pink spring fling <laughs> dress like the two of them like j- oh oh it's it just it's just beautiful honestly like i think i think my like goal aesthetic is like spring fling eleganza oh. in swampy abandoned pool house like that's just that's just iconic oh shit like yeah and i like one of my one of my notes like that i wrote watching this was just bisexual kill a queen because like jennifer like not only does she kill boys no no like when needy is like 
are you going to kill me? I thought you were into boys. And Jennifer's like, I go both ways. And I'm like, yes, girl, my <laughs> sexual representation. All right. Like, good job. You two already made out, but like really like nailing it in there. Fuck yeah. Yeah. It's one of the more like, um, explicit like references to a character being queer like we talked about patrick bateman and how like oh there's this scene where he seems to experience some gay panic or whatever and like that's definitely something that we can read into the story and this is definitely one of the more explicit like oh look she admitted like lovely (laughs) Uh, yeah like this is honestly i i was shooketh like by this like going from the kind of like subtle like uh lesbianism themes that we got in like the 60s haunting movie to like Mm. the 90s haunting movie where it's like okay we get like a mention of bisexuality like cool dope but like fast forward 10 years and we straight up have like girls making out on the screen and that 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 blew my mind and it's not just like because one thing that i really felt about the 90s haunting movie that i don't remember if if it made it into the episode or not but it really felt like the only reason that they made theo bisexual instead of lesbian in that one was so that uh they could still use her as like you know like fantasy material for men watching the movie like Mm -hmm. oh if i went to hill house i'd be having so many fucking threesomes um (laughs) um, yeah but with this one like it actually brings a depth to the character and there's actually like a it feels like there's more of a point to it than for her to just sort of flaunt and i don't know yeah like it's definitely not just to like increase jennifer's sexual capital like it it really does play a role in the story and like with her relationship with needy Absolutely. Um, I mean, speaking of Jennifer's relationship with Needy, I guess we can start getting into some of the themes of this movie. We're, we're moving along at a record pace here. I love to see it. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, we're doing good. So one thing that I listed as a theme for this movie is toxic femininity. And we talked about this a little bit, like towards the end of the last episode. Um, mm-hmm. And I will say before we get into this topic, there's a very fine line to walk here when you're talking about toxic femininity and the type of people that I think this movie is is intending to talk about. And you can really easily veer into like sexist talking points and incel talking points and stuff like that. So I think the movie does a great job of drawing out the type of toxicity that they're trying to examine with Jennifer's character. And I don't want to like spend too much time <laughs> harping on this mm-hmm. because I don't feel equipped to as a uh a cis man but jennifer is the epitome of a a mean girl right she is hot and she uses this as a weapon as a means to hurt others she has high social standing um we get a scene like right at the beginning when we're sort of establishing needy and jennifer's relationship and she she tells needy to wear something cute uh when they go to the show um and needy explains to us the audience that wear something cute means don't upstage me um and talking about like you can show like a little bit of you know you can wear something low cut you can show a bit of belly but do not show cleavage because tits are jennifer's trademark (laughs) is the line um there's a line where jennifer says something like when she's when she's starting to uh run low on the blood that she needs to to thrive 
She says, my skin is breaking out and my hair is dull and lifeless. I look like one of the normal girls. Like to her, it's so upsetting that she would look like how, essentially she's saying needy, like essentially how needy looks yeah. all the time. Yeah. So, so like she's constantly pulling these like toxic little power moves and mind games on needy to, to sort of like assert her dominance and assert her, her, uh, her status as like the alpha. Um, mm. And as, as a, a succubus or a, a demon possessed individual or whatever she is she literally gets her strength from attacking others she's sort of vampire adjacent also like that word is never used but she's she's, there's some there's some vampire elements um and she says to um what's his name colin at, at one point like when she's attacking him she says i need you frightened i need you hopeless like she feeds off of other people's fears and and insecurities um Mm -hmm. And so this type of person, the person who has high social standing and, and uses that as a weapon, um, like I, I think that's a, a type of toxicity that's, like I said, hard to talk about, and they do a really great job. Um, white women in particular are able to weaponize their femininity to mistreat you know, people of color, uh, queer, trans people, disabled, disabled people, basically anyone who they perceive of, as being lower on the, the sort of social ladder than them. Um, and worth noting is that there's a, an exchange student from India named Ahmet, who is actually Jennifer's first victim. She finds him like kind of right after the, the ritual, wandering home from the fire and he's lost. So she she drags him into the woods and and kills and eats him. But because he's not well connected, his absence is not really noticed by the town. I don't even know if we get mm. an established, like if they even mentioned that anyone looked for him, but he doesn't really get mentioned or counted among the, the town's tragedies that they experienced that night. He's just sort of gone and no one really notices, which I think is interesting. Um, yeah. And like Ahmet, like they don't just call him Ahmet. They call him Ahmet from India, like, specifically, like, and he is notably, like, I think the only person of color in the entire film. And I'm like, wow, this, like, this really is quite representative of, like, early 2000s, like, North America high school scene of, like, kind of expecting the entire, you know, high school dream to be, like, all these white kids who, like, you know, occasionally there's an exchange student, but like it really does like speak to the insecurity um, of these like exchange students in such a white world, right? Like where they only stick out because uh, like of their race and nationality and like the color of their skin, but like otherwise, like we get no characterization of him. Like yeah. we hear and like it, honestly, Jennifer almost seems like sad interacting with him because like she saw him at the bar at the fire and she's asking him questions and she's like are you lost and he's like yeah she's like does your host family know you're alive and he's like no she's like does anyone know you survived the fire he's like no and she's like don't worry come with me and it's (laughs) like oh god like it's just terrible. I, I maybe feel the most sorry for him out of anyone in the movie. Like, just because he he truly did the least. Like, I don't know. The football player didn't do anything to deserve it either. But he at least had, like, an arc. He got social, a chance. He at least yeah. had social status, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, but, like, Ahmet, I, he, literally just a circumstantial character. Like, literally the guy who's, like, wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. And, like 
fulfills that stereotype in like the horror movie of like oh the person of color dies first oh that's so true i didn't even think of that he's he's also yeah the only person of color in the movie right like i can't or no there's like there's like one east asian girl who calls needy a lesbian gay <laughs> like oh, who gets yeah, one yeah, line yeah yeah but like that's it yeah like, yeah the nerdy asian girl right who, who gets one one line yeah so like one line yeah. not not a super di- diverse movie i'll say that much <laughs> Oh dear God, no! No. So, like, honestly, it it really it really does remind me of high school. Like, it. Yeah, we. Uh, yeah, we we went to a small town high school with with very similar demographics for sure. Um, yeah. I along these lines, I wanted to talk about the female gaze as well in the movie. Um, this is this movie is directed by a woman, um, and we both mentioned in our like initial understanding of this movie is. One thing that we both understood about the movie from the way it was marketed is that Jennifer is hot. Megan Fox is hot in this movie. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, Me- Megan Fox is fine in this movie. Um, but, it, <laughs> and we mentioned that that's sort of the way that Megan Fox was marketed back then. She was coming right off, uh, right off the heels of Transformers. But mm-hmm. in this movie, it felt empowering. And again, there's only so much I feel entitled to say about it as, as a cis man, but um, like if you can, com- if you compare this with transformers, like her character in transformers was literally just eye candy. Her whole point mm. was to show up, be hot, like be pic- be, you know, pictured leaning over the hood of a fucking Camaro. Um, and like, I remember specifically like the shots of like her midriff while she was like fixing a car or whatever, like just specifically, it was like, just, the camera was just sort of eating up Megan Fox's body in that movie. Um, Mm -hmm. But even though she showed less skin in Transformers, she's more objectified in that. Like she, she feels Mm -hmm. more empowered in this. She is to be feared and revered and respected in this movie beyond what she is in Transformers. And like, yeah, we get like, you know, there's like a full, full naked scene of her swimming. There's like some, some significant side boobage. (laughs) <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to to remember the way that movies were talked about back in the day um oh side boobs side mm-hmm. boobs <laughs> used to be such a hot topic what happened to side boob akon and side boob snoop dog what have you done with them <laughs> uh let us take you back to 2009 when side boob was king um oh god but ultimately she's still the the victim of an all male band. She's, she's lured into a vulnerable place by these men. And so we're sympathetic to her, even though we acknowledge that she is a monster in herself. So she's, she's sort of both victim and villain. We both sympathize with her and want needy to to fucking eviscerate her at all times. Like, I just, I thought Mm. that was, uh, I, I really like Jennifer as a character. She's very complex you, you feel kind of all ways about her at different points in the movie. You feel sorry for her. You hate her. Uh, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was pretty interesting because like needy at the very beginning of the movie, when she's like telling chip about what happened at the bar and like when it burnt down, she's like, and like Jennifer went into like this rapist van, like, and you know, the, the band is taking her away and blah, blah, blah. Like we need to go find her. We need to help her. And Chip, like, does the really douchey thing of, like, oh, no, she'll be fine. Like, yeah, as long as you're okay, like, whatever. And, like, really downplays the seriousness of, like, a teenage girl 
being taken away from a bar by a van full of five fully grown men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like it's it's not that Jennifer like Jennifer is a monster. Like yes. as a teenage girl, she is a monster. Like I think we've been over this, but like you haven't seen Mean Girls, right? I have. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, thank God you've seen Mean Girls. Okay, like as of like Jennifer a year ago. Is... Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so like I have eat slept and like lived mean girls since it came out but like mean girls is another like very poignant like poignant is our word of the day day, like it's it's a very like poignant example of like the animosity and like toxic femininity um that we find in high school and jennifer's a hundred percent like a regina george character right Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. the the alpha female but like jennifer like she she doesn't become like the demon and monster by her own volition right it's through this kind of like um kidnapping and rape that she is forced to become a villain by these adult men right yeah so like it's through her victimized oh excuse me it's through her victimization that she becomes a like terrible force which like again like Sometimes I like to, I I really like to play the game of like, ooh, could this movie like still happen without the supernatural elements? And oh, so okay. I was like thinking through that. I'm like, okay, like is Jennifer becoming a demon, like a metaphor for how she copes with like the trauma of being like essentially like kidnapped and raped by this band? Like, would that play out similarly then of like, her you know then going on and like coping with the trauma because they do mention like post-traumatic stress disorder in the movie so i thought that might be one of the like plays on her kind of like demonhood as being like you know she turns into a demon as like a response to her trauma but i maybe that would have worked without the like uh evisceration of teenage boys but like i mean she could have turned into a teenage murderer. I think it's I think it's really interesting to contrast because we've talked a lot about toxic masculinity on this podcast with with a lot of different mm-hmm. villains that we have talked about. You you contrast uh, Jennifer with someone like Patrick Bateman, who he is just sort of a monster because he wants to be on top all the time. And mm-hmm. Jennifer has that, but what Patrick Bateman doesn't have is this like he he is not also sort of made victim to someone else's uh sick impulses and and wiles right like he is the -hmm. the closest thing he gets to the to the low shoulder uh experience that jennifer has is like feeling slightly uncomfortable in a bathroom with lewis um (laughs) right and like lewis isn't even trying to like hurt him in any way lewis wants to caress and love him so yeah (laughs) lewis wants to make masculinity that's right it's just his masculinity that's hurt whereas like yeah. Jennifer's femininity is never hurt. Like yeah. it is it's it's not her like concept of femininity that's like offended at any time. It's like her, like the actual person who's hurt. And like yeah, I think that's like one of the peak differences between toxic masculinity and toxic femininity is that like you can undermine masculinity but like yeah it's so fragile. the undermining factor yeah the undermining factor is femininity so like 
toxic femininity, I mean, you, <laughs> you, you can't really undermine it with masculinity. So, I, I mean... <laughs> I guess there's kind of the attempt at that when she calls Needy Butch, but that's kind of, like, the closest you can get. <laughs> uh, yeah, and even then, that's, like, that's just going into... I, I mean, does lesbianism undermine fem- femininity? Like, not... No. Not entirely. Not really. But, I mean... One thing that I did want to talk about with like Jennifer as a villain is like she's an example, like an excellent example of how mirroring male behavior and be like and being penalized for it because Jennifer essentially turns into a fuckboy that kills, and the football player Jonas is said to be ripped limb from limb. And, like, that got me excited as someone who, like, studied classics. Because I was like, oh my god, I know what that is! Spragmus, which is the act of... Spragmus, which is the act of tearing apart a concept we get from ancient Greek mythology about Dionysus. And, you know, Dionysus is the god of uh, sex, drugs, and alcohol, and, like, partying and having a good time. And... In the Euripidean play, The Bacchae, Dionysus takes revenge on a city which rejects him for his effeminate nature by gathering the women of the city as his followers. And the female worshippers of Dionysus are called Bacchants, or the Maenads, and they partake in drinking, partying, and casual sex in the woods. Essentially, these women go feral and act as men would, which is, like, outrageous. And (laughs) (laughs) in the story of The Bacchae, King Pentheus bans the women from their worship of Dionysus because he thinks it's improper. And he's tricked into trying to infiltrate the women's camp. And when they discover him, the women commit sparagmus and tear him limb from limb as punishment and as a sacrifice to Dionysus. So, like, typically Dionysian revenge is enacted when someone is kept under strict restraints and finally snaps. Jennifer's body mangling like really pays tribute to the maenads and represents the rage of teenage girls in high school as like these girls are kept under such strict regulations of how to look, how to act, how to speak, how to be sexually, how to do their gender, you know, how to do this presentation of female. And Jennifer really breaks free from that mold after she like goes demon. Yeah. And like she i i fucking love it like it it very much is a cathartic movie of like okay this girl has been the victim of like five grown men and now she is taking her vengeance out upon you know the boys around her and i mean you mentioned like you know does this movie work without the supernatural elements Mm -hmm. to it i mean there's a whole sort of genre of horror like called the rape revenge trope or the the rape revenge story like the the most Mm -hmm. notable one is probably uh i spit on your grave but that's a whole like theme that recurs very very often in uh in horror literature in particular is a a woman is um victimized by a bunch of men and left for dead and returns from the dead either literally or figuratively to to enact revenge on them in very bloody and cathartic ways um, and it's kind of interesting so because it's sort of a reversal of a lot of different horror tropes because you mm-hmm. end up rooting for the killer who is taking out their victims one by one. 
Um, right. And it's so it's sort of like this cathartic, like double, like this is the villain, but I'm also kind of like on board for a little bit of what the villain is doing um, to, to some degree. So like it, I would say it definitely does, uh, even though I don't think it's ever like specifically mentioned that she she isn't like actually like it, it sort of resembles that sort of story. But I don't think she's actually like abused in that way by them. I think it's like the, the slaughter and the murder and whatever. But mm-hmm. she kind of thinks that's where it's going because they keep talking in the van about arguing about whether she's a virgin or not. And so she kind of yeah. thinks that's where things are going. And it's, it's definitely like brings up that kind of trauma in the viewer when you're watching it. But I, I don't, I don't think that explicitly happens, but I could be wrong. No, like as is from what we see in the movie, like she's literally just sacrificed to Satan. Yeah. Yeah. Like, which I, I will say I did not see coming. (laughs) Not at all. Right. Yeah. You didn't know. Dear God, when they revealed that in the movie, I was like, oh, oh, I see. And here I just thought it was like, you know, she was raped and tortured. But like, no, no, no. She she was just sacrificed to Satan. Right. Yeah. While they sang. No big deal. 8675309. Jenny Jim. Oh, God. Don't you lose my number. They did like a terrible karaoke rendition of that song while they (laughs) stabbed her up, which was just awful. Yes, (laughs) it was awful. Um, So uh, we we will get there. We will get there. Tell me me about Uh, tell me about the gay, Shannon. Oh, yes. I would love to tell you about the gay because like. I, I like I, I I loved I loved the gay in this movie. Like it done it it done did gay well and I think it did homoeroticism so much better than The Covenant, which was like our last movie watch, which was total queer bait and like the male version of homoeroticism, but like I I feel like Jennifer's body did a good job of portraying the certain kind of tension that you find in long-lasting best friendships where devotion can really blur into feelings of attraction and i think it's tackled very appropriately with the most like beautiful most delectable that's a good um, word for it make out uh, right like it it really was a delectable make out scene like i i don't think i've ever like witnessed like movie kissing that was like quite so like sweet and tender and beautiful and like Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried really do bring to life the epitome of that like slumber party fantasy right but it's also like very quickly shattered because Mm -hmm. that's not the reality of like what best friends are actually like right you know, um, uh, Jennifer says in the movie, she's like, we always share your bed when we have slumber parties. And it's like, you know, that can be interpreted as like a very sexual thing. But I mean, I I don't know about you, Jake, but like when I watched it, I was like, oh, that's like, that's just straight up true. Like you share your bed with your friend when you have a sleepover, like, and you stay up late and talk and like it just makes sense like you don't have a spare guest bedroom you don't want to sleep on the couch like the both of you are comfortable together like you've probably been changing together for years so like it literally 
does not matter and like it's okay to like platonically snuggle and stuff like in these female friendships right and like the director kusama and the writer cody like they really wanted to show the scary intensity of teenage female friendships like the level of devotion between girls who grow up together and like form a best friendship is horrifying from the outside <laughs> like absolutely horrifying like what do you mean you know every single tiny detail and secret about this girl like what do you mean you share everything like why are you calling each other constantly like why are you so obsessed with each other but that's that's what it is to be best friends like i had like one of my exes from high school like he was he was so shocked to discover that i had told like my best friends every single detail about our relationship up to that point like you strategically analyze each other's like love lives yeah especially. that's to be expected yeah, yeah and like he he was shook like he felt so violated and i'm like what do you mean you don't share like the intimate details of your life and your fantasies and your dreams and like the ongoings with your best friend wait what do you mean you don't have a best friend? Excuse me? Like, I have, you know, I have, like, four or five best friends. Like, it, like inside the, like, best friend relationship, like, it's an unquestionable intimacy. Like, you get to the point of not even hesitating with that intimacy. And, and then, I mean, Jennifer takes advantage of that so, so oh, absolutely. in that scene right i think she probably knows on some to some degree that needy like has some beyond platonic feelings towards her uh mm-hmm. as with a lot of these friendships right there's there's some gray area between what is platonic intimacy and what is what is beyond platonic um and so i mean yeah when she says those lines like we always share your bed when we have some slumber parties and things i think this whole this whole scene, like in the kiss and everything, feels like a real power move on her part. Because absolutely she knows goddamn well that there's a lot more going on than whatever the hell that is with that whatever she's doing to toy with that gray area in their intimacy, right? Um, there are mm. a lot more concerning things going on in your life right now, including uh eating people. Um and yeah. she is using this as a diversion and a power move to try to to gain an upper hand on her socially, which is why she is such a vicious, vicious bitch. <laughs> like, this is one of the ways in which we demonstrate that Jennifer is a fucking terrible person. Because <laughs> she really is yeah. taking advantage of her best friend and her best friend's feelings uh, and, and her sort of intimate uh, curiosity here um, to, yeah. to try to get really... to try to power move her. Yeah. Yeah, she really weaponizes her sexuality. Yes. And whether that's to, like, seduce people to murder them or just to, like, seduce someone to avoid talking, right? And to avoid confrontation. Because, like, clearly Needy, like, knows a bit about what's going on and it was going to confront Jennifer. And that's, you know, she does right after she breaks off the kiss, but, like, you know, if Jennifer had been successful, like, she could have totally avoided talking about any kind of, like, serious issues in that moment. And one of, like, one of the things I really enjoyed about Jennifer's body is that 
like Jennifer and Needy aren't the only example of, you know, this kind of like toxic, intense, like feminine best friendship dynamic. Like we see it between the emo girls who are part of Colin's friend group. And I fucking loved this. So at the spring fling dance, one of the girls, like one of the emo girls goes like popping balloons for like, her misery and like this one's for in memoriam of Colin and this one is like because I hate life and the other girl in her group pops two balloons and she's like and this one is for your first abortion and this one's for your second abortion and like (laughs) when you know one another's every secret and weakness like you're really equipped to pull them out as ammunition at like any moment which is what Jennifer does to needy right like she pulls up all of these hard memories but like i love the example of the emo girls because like it's done so casually like in a setting where other people can hear and it's just like these matter of fact it, literally it's like these facts about each other these kind of like yeah. secret facts that like they use to kind of root each other in reality and like you know, try to like the jabs to keep the other one humble and to like keep them from over dramatizing and to be like, like you're trying to sound poetic, bitch, but like remember, like you have other things to be sad about. Like you're putting up this kind of front, but like, girl, I know you better than that. Like I know what actually makes you sad. And like it is, oh, it is just so horrible and like (laughs) so great it's like very much like what happens with like gretchen wieners and mean girls right like you know her hair is full of secrets like she knows everything about these other girls yeah right and like the specific pressure points and i mean because when you're when you're close to someone you're vulnerable with them and anyone that you're mm -hmm. vulnerable to knows how to hurt you right so that's that's why these high school relationships and that's why this movie works as a high school movie because it's yes. so scary when you're surrounded with people who have like let's be honest mo- like the general demographic of a typical high school pretty low emotional intelligence and emotional capability so when you yeah. know that <laughs> your entire life and your your entire emotional being is tied up in another person who at any point could fucking blow that up is like <laughs> terrifying and that's kind of what the movie's about um yeah and like that happens right like you know uh jennifer and needy say like sandbox love never dies and like heartbreaking moment like yes needy rips off jennifer's bff necklace effectively breaking her heart before she stabs it yeah like that was like totally using the knowledge of their relationship to make Jennifer pause and to like (laughs) give Needy that opening. But, but no, Needy's love for Jennifer doesn't die. And I know this because of Needy's actions at the end of the movie and how she seeks out low shoulder and fucking wrecks them. Yes. She is seeking revenge for the loss of her happiness the loss of her boyfriend, the loss of her potential future because now she's fucking locked up in jail. Mm -hmm. But first and foremost, she kills Low Shoulder because of the loss of her best friend. Like, on the night of the fire, Low Shoulder murders Jennifer. 
And I think that when Needy learns the truth of what happened to Jennifer, she stops seeing Jennifer as Jennifer and begins seeing her as the vessel which is possessed by a demon. Like, she accepts that her best friend is long dead. And Mm -hmm. all that's left is her body. Jennifer's possessed body. Like, Mm. that's not her best friend. Yeah. That's her best friend's body. Which, I mean, the title of the movie, right? Yep. And so the first thing she does with the powers that are, like, given to her by Jennifer is kill the bastards who murder her best friend. Boom. Mm. Sandbox love never dies. My God. Yeah. And I mean, like, historically, like, of course, like, there's gayness in this movie because, like, best friends, whenever you're talking about, like, female best friends, you get into, like, the historical understanding of best friends, which were, like, lesbians didn't exist until a certain Mm -hmm. point in time because people didn't believe that women, like, could do anything together like they couldn't have penetrative sex therefore they couldn't have sex and so like oh those women are very close um but they're just best friends it's not like they like like they love each other but like they love each other like best friends Mm -hmm. and you know we see this with like jennifer and needy with people making the insinuation that like they're lesbian gay for each other but like they weren't wearing the title of best friends to hide their romantic and sexual intimacy, but because they trauma bonded while growing up together, you know, and they were trauma bonded through estrogen puberty. And like, I can say as like someone who's gone through that, like traumatic estrogen puberty bonding, like those like best friendships last, like it's called, best friends forever Mm -hmm. for a reason you know like if one of my like best friends forever fucking called me up i would be there like in a heartbeat oh yeah because like you're you're bonded like there's a reason it's bffs and not bfs like i (laughs) i used to say i'm like boyfriends are temporary best friends are forever (laughs) and like honestly from from my anecdotal experience that still rings true thank you mm-hmm. thank you for coming to my ted talk about best friends <laughs> man i feel like i feel like i missed out on uh, the bonding experience of estrogen puberty now because i testosterone puberty is just like i don't know you all start becoming obsessed with like who can fucking punch harder <laughs> was... wow. like i i was actually i was wondering while watching this like i know I know, like, I can really relate to, like, you know, the themes of Best Friends Forever that was very manifest in the movie. But, like, it, how, how do you relate to that with, like, your experience of Best Friends? Man, that's complicated. That's a very good question. Um, it, like, it's something that I, you know, having, like, a, a best friend like that or someone that you're that, like, closely bonded with is something that I uh remember from childhood but not like Mm -hmm. but it's a it's like you said it's that it's that forever element like i know and talk to one person that i went to elementary school with and like two people that i went to high school with including you so like Mm -hmm. um no in, in my experience it's much more of like uh you know there's I, this is also could just be me as an individual because I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to pretend to speak for, for everybody in this situation, but 
Um, I mentioned this uh, when we were watching the lighthouse act actually, but I think like a lot of times toxic masculinity gets in the way of male friendship. Um, Mm. And it's like hard. It's hard for me to like, form friendships with new dudes like mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't get along with other men that well um because like i don't know the second someone's like you know hanging out for like 15 minutes getting along pretty well and then someone's like oh yeah i heard that on joe rogan i'm like all right skip like i'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, so God. maybe that's me being a, a a picky bitch right like that could be me as an individual and i don't know maybe maybe other dudes bond a little bit better and stronger than i do but in uh, in my experience, like male friendship is a lot more like disposable. I want to say like, it's a lot more like, oh. hmm, if you're not really matching my vibe right now, I'm going to kind of move on. Like, that's just going to kind of be mm-hmm. how it is. Um, I don't know. But I, again, maybe that's me. Maybe that's not uh, any commentary on like men as a species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As uh, the species from Mars or, um, or I forget, are they the species from Uranus? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got him. <laughs> nice one. I want to talk about youth culture and moral panics, Shannon. All right, let's do it. Um, I remember, I remember being like 13 ish when this movie came out. Right. And mm-hmm. um, we grew up in like the post nine 11 world of like, hyper like nationalism hyper masculinity um a lot Mm. of like deference to like the military and the police and the troops and the flag and whatnot right um and even though that was like i would say more so an american thing everything american bleeds up north like we we get all of that secondhand either through consuming Mm. american media or just the sort of cultural interchange that makes everything sort of echo up here right um Mm. I thought that that was really well represented in this movie. There's a great, like, I thought the the scene at the bar before, like, you know, when they went to go see the, um, the, the low shoulder perform, it was super interesting mm-hmm. before the fire even happened. Uh, there's a great yeah. line where uh, Jennifer goes to, like grab some drinks and she's like they've got a 9-11 tribute shooter it's red white and blue but you have to drink it really fast or else it turns kind of brownish (laughs) 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 which like it's the what what rang true about that to me was like the sort of weird vapid experience of growing up in the post 9-11 world where it's like a whole lot of stuff is happening and i don't really understand most of it right i understand that this big thing happened and that was bad obviously Mm -hmm. but then there's a whole lot that you're asked to sort of also accept in in the wake of that that it's not really as well understood and like Mm -hmm. my mind goes to there's a really fascinating interesting like disney channel ad from like 2002 which is like a 9-11 memorial and it's like random i don't remember like who would have been on on it um Mm -hmm. but like the rampant nationalism after after that and the way that everything and again this is 2009 this is not like immediately post 9-11 this is years and years out but it's Mm -hmm. still like ever present where it's like oh my god everything is like the flag a 9-11 tribute shooter eight years later like kind of wild and then chris pratt the dude that jennifer is sort of stepping toward the beginning of the movie is like a police cadet and so he's kind of like wired into that world um and that's like there's a there's a girl who mentioned specifically that her dad has PTSD from 
uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, which was like the, you know, Afghanistan, uh, like the war on terror, more or less, uh, from mm. the U.S. side of things. Um, so, okay, going through like that lens of things, right, where it's this this world of like propaganda and hysteria and nationalism. Yeah. All coming out of like this sort of um, uh, like like this sort of playing up of a, of a tragedy, right? Like I'm not I'm not here mm-hmm. to undermine 9 11. I'm not saying it wasn't bad. Don't 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 get at me for that. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's the amount of like we are going to use this tragedy to manipulate you through the media. Yes, and that is exactly what happens with the fire that results from that scene. Um, there is a scene. so yeah, low shoulder becomes American heroes. Like there is a, there is a scene where needy is like arguing and is like, oh my God, they were, they did not help people escape the fire. I was there. I saw it. That didn't happen. And a girl in her class pipes up and is like, low shoulder are American heroes. And so she's made to endure this, like, sort of like, they become synonymous with like the surviving spirit of the community of devil's kettle. Um, mm-hmm. there's a scene where the teacher talks about how they're doing the low shoulder is coming to play the spring dance. And I know you're all feeling sad right now, but we can't let the fire win. <laughs> right. Like they, they mobilize the mythology of the fire of like a tragedy. Yes. Yeah. And, and regardless of what the people who were actually there and are actually affected by it are actually going through, um, they kind of are like, no, the panacea for that issue is you need to love low shoulder. You need mm-hmm. to, you need to fall in line and support this band. Um, I thought something that was like really brought me back to 2009. Well, is this idea that art becomes emblematic of bigger issues. Do you remember the world of fandom Ooh. around this time and how, like, if someone didn't like the things that you like, especially online, it was like, not only is this person having a different opinion than me it's like this person is a bad person because to me this art this show this band this song this movie whatever it is is not just it is not just what it is it is what it represents so if you Mm -hmm. don't like fucking my disney channel show if you don't like my song you hate america and and you hate the flag and you hate the troops um and again, I'm, I'm tying it back to the sort of post 9-11 world of, tra- of national trauma and nationalism. But that is sort of like what mm. I see re- reflected in that. Uh, and I absolutely loved, yeah, like, and, and we all remember how toxic the sort of the world of fandom was. I don't know if it's calmed down at all, but that's that was how it felt at that time, where everything was emblematic of something bigger. Um, yeah. And like, yeah, there's the scene where Needy gets into the car. She's dealing with like all the stress of all of this. I think it's when she's doing her research and she gets into the car and turns it on and through the trees is playing through the radio and she just fucking screams at the top of her lungs because she's so frustrated. <laughs> I That was great and so relatable. And I find it interesting how like there's there's a constant moral panic going back to like the 50s and 60s, even maybe the 40s. Like, um musical acts that are going to corrupt the youth right like oh god you buy these records for your kids and you are inviting essentially satan into the house and then that becomes so much more when it comes to like counterculture when it comes to like the vietnam war and the afghanistan war and stuff right you are inviting if you if you take let this counterculture into your home if you let the youth do what they want they are going to it's going to turn your kids into 
X, Y, Z, communists, liberals, uh, <laughs> <laughs> gays, even whatever, <laughs> whatever. God it's going forbid. To turn into. Yeah. Um, and I, what I love about this movie is I think it really gets at the heart of how teens, I think, in my opinion, they have it rough because there's a mix of being actually uninformed, right? Like us, we in mm-hmm. 2009 and 13, as 13 year olds could not parse what was going on in Afghanistan. I certainly, oh, I can't now. now, today, right? There's mm-hmm. this mix of being actually uninformed and um, ignorant and manipulated by what's happening in, in the media and, and what is being told to you about uh, politics, about culture, about life, about who you should be and what you should do. Uh, and then also there's this like vapid culture of people performing and playing up their ignorance. And there's all oh, these lines God, throughout yeah. the movie that are like, oh my God, this is deeply concerning. And teens say stuff like this, you know, like they go into the bar and uh, Jennifer says, I can't wait till I'm old enough to get wasted because she wants to drink and she's not old enough. Um, there is like, she says something like, this is the best day since Jesus invented the calendar. And then Needy says like, <laughs> Jesus didn't invent the calendar. And Jennifer goes, okay, whatever. Like, I, I think this movie does a great job of addressing the nightmare that is high school. And we talked about like the emotional vulnerability, being manipulated mm-hmm. from all <laughs> from all directions, being uninformed, having to contend with like these, these issues of image. Um, and it's satirized teen awkwardness and frankly stupidity in this way while never feeling like it was being condescending or blaming the youth for their own problems. Cause there's such an impulse to be like, Oh my God, the youth are so stupid. They, they act this way. And I didn't ever feel like it was like, because again, as much as we hate Jennifer, we also feel for her. Um, yeah. And I felt that way about kind of all the kids in the movie. I'm like, Oh my God, these poor fucking kids. That's how I felt at every turn. I'm like, Oh, they're, they're being put through so much traumatic shit. And at the same time, they are not being given the resources to help. Um, and mm. like JK Simmons is a teacher in this movie. And there's a great line where he's like, we all need to heal as a community. And I want you to put aside your teenage concerns about who's a cool dude and who's a hoe. And I'm like, I'm still trying to put aside my teenage concerns about who's a cool dude and who's a hoe. And I'm a 25 year old man right like (laughs) right it's hard it's it's uh it's not easy and the last thing i'll say about this is like if you want to talk about misreading teenage cries for help which like there's a lot of in this movie (laughs) jk simmons at one point like is outside and jonas the football player is literally being disemboweled by jennifer like having his guts ripped out and he hears the screams off in the distance while he's getting into his car and he goes that's right kids let it all out <laughs> so it's like yeah quite literally misreading those cries for help like i thought it was such oh a perfect God. satire because it, it simultaneously absolutely roasted and eviscerated teen culture and this culture of uh vapidness while also like being very it felt like very empathetic at the same time so yeah that was something i loved about this movie it was very like self-reflexive and like very self-aware in that way i think of like giving us these teenage experiences that you can really relate to like and really playing on the awkwardness as well like oh god that awkwardness like i when jennifer was like 
seducing Jonas, like, through grief, you know, being like, <laughs> yeah, oh, this, like, your best friend, like, he told me that night that, like, he thought we would make a really good couple. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that was so fucked. <laughs> that was so right? Fucked. Like, but like, but it's like, that's like grief does like people do wild things in response to grief. And like one of the ways of avoiding grieving that like they show in this and that teenagers do all the time is like turn to sex and sexuality. Like instead of, you know, digging deep into these bigger issues and like, you know, the things that they emotionally can't handle, they'll just turn to sex, yeah. right, for, like, escape. And I, oh, God, like, they, yeah, this movie just does a really good job of showcasing that in, like, very awkward ways. Like, all of Jennifer's seductions are not smooth. Like, they are, they are not sexy. They are not smooth. <laughs> like, they are so uncomfortable they're only they're sexy so because it's megan awkward. fox like if it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> literally if it were anyone else like you'd be like oh my would... god i'm running away <laughs> uh, right and like even like the guys who are seduced like do not seem 100 percent comfortable no. with it but they're like i have this opportunity okay yeah. uh sure i guess um what the hell you I know think... I think the way that this movie handles sex and I'll, I'll make this point really quickly and then I'll, you, I'll let you talk about making a deal with Satan. Um, I think the way that this movie deals with sex is really interesting because yeah, like you say, like there's so much in teen culture of like, you're being pressured to have sex and not be a fucking virgin and whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Like whether that's coming from yourself or from your peers or from like TV, like whatever. Right. Like you, that's, that's something that is well-documented teens want to be doing that um and like the something about like chip and needy's sex life was really endearing like chip has like maybe mm -hmm. a couple shitty moments of being like an ignorant teenage boy right and like yeah there's there's the whole thing where he's being very dismissive of what happened to jennifer but also like yeah. there's these like they have a sex scene and it's so like awkward and mechanical and <laughs> kind of just like like it is played for laughs but it's also like Oh, she she starts having like visions of like the horrors that are going on related to Jennifer, like while they're they're having their like very small mechanical sexual interaction. And like mm -hmm. he says, like, oh, like do you do you want to stop? Am I hurting you? And then he's kind of like, Am I too big? And he says it like with this little <laughs> bit of like hope and like op like <laughs> am, is this is this what's going on? And like just there's a there's another scene where like they're by the lockers and he's like oh do you want to come over after school i went to super target and picked up more condoms and she's like thank you and he's like but not that that's like that's not, we don't have to like whatever you're like <laughs> i don't know there's something <laughs> the contrast of like their relatively sweet relationship where where he's mm -hmm. you know he's doing his best he, he has some slip-ups along the way but he tries to be like a yeah. relatively caring partner by you know 17 year old he's mostly like standards. a good guy yeah yeah um and then jennifer's like dirty hookups in like the woods and abandoned houses and an abandoned pool and like god the concept of like being a teenager and not being able to use your own house for that kind of stuff and having to do it out in the open like yeah the awful like ugh yeah i thought just like the the way that they presented all that stuff is like yeah there's this sort of like sweet clumsy 
relationship that we get. And then there's all the dirty, disgusting, like misguided um, and ultimately violent uh, interactions that Jennifer has. And I guess that's something that like is worth mentioning. And we did put up the, you know, the, the warning for uh, sexual assault. And, and we mentioned that this isn't like your typical rape revenge story, but like what Jennifer's doing to these boys, I guess has to be mentioned as well. Right. Like that's, all of that is like they're clearly not okay with this situation and that's uh, an interesting uh, dimension to that character that she is also uh, victimizing these dudes in like that's very much i guess the like succubus yeah that's true the demon right and that's why like all the descriptions are like she seduces them right like it's kind of like talking and like kind of forcing these boys into like participating in sexual acts. Oh yeah, because that is not an enthusiastic yes. When we talk about enthusiastic oh, consent, God, no. that is not a full body fuck yeah. <laughs> that no, is no, no way. <laughs> those like those boys are scared and uncomfortable, but they're like, well, I she's she's the hot girl in school. Oh okay, mm-hmm. I guess this is happening. And then you know? and then they're dead. And then they're fucking Yeah. They're and, and then they're dead. Yeah. So okay. One more thing I on Chip. Our... The oh yeah, he is like uh, needy. Shows up and she's like chomping down on his neck. And then they fight her and she leaves and Chip dies in her arms. I use too many mm-hmm. her pronouns there, but I think everyone followed along. Okay, Chip dies in needy's sure. arms. And there's a line where he says, "I think I actually died before you got here, but I heard your voice and I woke up to like fight her with you." And I'm like, man, that. Like the movie got me a little bit. I don't like cry at movies. I didn't like, I didn't like well up or anything, but like, that was a like emotionally resonant, like chip. That was like, that was like kind of romantic. They got away with like a really sweet moment in this movie. Like, ah, everything about this movie done very well. Very, very well. Like it, it was very sweet, but like, oh, you brought me back to life. Like, yeah. Aw, aw, chip. but i don't forgive him for stealing my haircut no no i actually i i love how chip's name is chip dove (laughs) is it (laughs) it is like he just i was like dove like that really for some reason that really does fit chip's character like he's just Hmm. he's he's a sweet boy like he's he's wholesome and he just you know, really likes his girlfriend. He kind of, like, he kind of, he's very pure. He sort of symbolizes purity as you would expect a dove to do a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then he gets baptized in the swamp water with mm. uh, sexy, sexy demon Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Let's talk about making a deal with and... Satan. All right. Okay. <laughs> so <clears throat> this one, this one fucking stuck out to me mm-hmm. uh, because I mean, immediately I was hit with like, okay, this movie is a twist on the idea of like selling your soul for rock and roll. And uh, so, quotes, the origin of rock and roll can arguably trace back to one man and one myth. The American blues musician Robert Johnson, who allegedly sold his soul to the devil for virtuos- virtuosic, Virt- virtuosic, amazing sure. guitar playing <laughs> ability, thus giving birth to the blues. 
Justin Harmon wrote an essay in 2021 to explore Johnson's origin story as the mythic root of rock music and how Johnson set the stage for deviance as an inherent quality of rock music as embraced by fans. Like his paper is literally called The Crossroads Selling Your Soul for Rock and Roll. Hmm. And like I like I learned about the concept of selling your soul for rock and roll from the TV show Metalocalypse uh, when this course. like metal band yeah <laughs> from when this metal band tries to make a deal with the devil for their music to be a success and manage to like out negotiate the devil with the, like the fine details of their contract you know the uh, the devil is in the detail and I found that low shoulder is an updated version of making this deal with the devil right. It's an impromptu ritual with a single page printout from the internet. Like they don't even know their sacrifice's name and they have to ask after like already starting the ceremony and they are clearly in it for the aesthetics. Like this band, like they can already play, you know, they've got like a a good amount of musical ability and like they already have a good audience and stuff. So they're not really selling their, you know, their own souls to get the ability to play music. But what they're doing is they are trading someone else's life, you know, someone else's body for popularity. Mm -hmm. And like, they are hella into it for the aesthetics. Yeah. Like they say, Satan is our only hope. We're in league with the beast now and we have to leave a really big impression on him. And Nikolai even uses a Bowie knife because, dude, that is a hot murder weapon. And of course, it references David Bowie. Like, these guys are posers. And <laughs> they, like, they are the scum of the earth. And like, I, I loved when they did the ritual. And, like, when you mentioned, like, reading a single page printout from the internet, like, <laughs> It is literally done with the amount of like fervor and resolve of like reading MapQuest instructions that because back then you had to print out instructions if you didn't have a GPS or or your phone. Yes, uh, your smartphone probably couldn't do that. So like, yeah, they they are like, uh, okay, Satan, we sacrifice this virgin to thee, and then like he like ungags her to ask her what her name is. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you mentioned the, like, the song earlier, but, like... Through uh, the, the trees. Like... <laughs> no, 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 the other one, the oh. other one. Eight, six, six, six seven, five, five, three, oh, nine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, so, like, there's this impromptu singing. Um, and, like, that goes, like, directly into violence. And it really reminded me of the Clockwork Orange when Alex DeLarge is, like dancing around to singing in the rain while like destroying a house and murdering a couple Mm. and like like nikolai taunts jennifer by faking her out and singing like jenny i got your number and the rest of the band joins in singing acapella like about a girl whose number was written on a bathroom stall like ew (laughs) and it really like it really like speaks to the victimization of women by musicians and like how they're used as a muse like those songs then inspire the further using of women like not only is this band victimizing and using a woman but like they make reference to a song that uses women previously and nikolai's like you know what 
maybe we'll write a song about you. As a fan, that would be pretty cool, right? Like, as they're about to murder her, he's like, well, look on the bright side. You'll be immortalized in a song. Yeah. And like, I really think low shoulder is a symptom of the misogynistic music industry, which mines women for inspiration and views them as productive objects of desire, like a means by which to get famous by telling stories about them, but never by telling their stories. Mm. Jennifer's Body is a film that seeks to tell Jennifer's story rather than tell a story about her as like this pop punk band would. And then her victimization is reflected by how Jennifer later claims her victims, right? She fakes them out by hooking up first, like how Nikolai pauses to say, hey, maybe Jenny is the girl for me before killing them. I mentioned earlier about moral panics, right? And like this idea that there's these musical acts that are going to corrupt the youth and all of that stuff. I Mm. think what makes it tough if you're especially if you're a person who like cares about youth and and teenagers and things like that is like you know like on invariably youth will see it as oh the old people don't like the things that i like they Mm -hmm. see this thing as evil i see it for what it is and i know better i'm an adult so i'm gonna make the choice to you know keep keep loving and, and consuming this thing and nine times out of ten that's fine but what's tough is that there is this real culture of misogyny where, yeah, like, you know, there are so many, you know, pick your favorite fucking uh, actor or band that's been, you know, like dug up their, the, the skeletons in their closet have been dug up with the people that they have abused and victimized and things like that. Like there, there is a culture that allows mm-hmm. these things to happen. And that's really tough when you're, when you're, you know, trying to convince someone that this thing is not good for them, whether that's because you're an old fuddy-duddy who doesn't like the, the, the new hip things that the youth are into, or whether you're genuinely trying to protect someone, those two things become impossible to tell, to, to parse when you're, when you're a young person, right? It's, it's either this person hates the thing that I yeah. like, and so they're lying to me about it, or this person cares about me and doesn't want me to be hurt, or both, mm-hmm. or neither. And at, at some point, you know, you, you're sort of at the, uh, the mercy of the world around you. Yeah, like... I don't know if you've found this, but like uh, sometimes I go back and like listen to old music that I really loved. And like at the time I'm like, oh, this is a bop. Like this, this fucking slaps. Like yeah. this, this beat is so good. But then I'll, I'll actually listen to the lyrics and the lyrics are like disgusting. Like <laughs> yeah. horrible, like the most like misogynistic shit oh my lanta yeah i'll say it people like us grew up absolutely loving eminem all the time and he gets harder and harder to listen to every year <laughs> like yes. as the years go yes, by he does. it's like oh man man and his new stuff isn't yeah. good either so it's like <laughs> oh, no. all you have is the old stuff and that stuff sucks for other reasons i don't know maybe i'll get flamed in the comments for saying that but that's how I feel. I don't know. Like <laughs> for me, like the one I've been like struggling with the most is Marilyn Manson. Oh, it's, sure. Like, right. Like once, once you like see the person behind the music, you then start seeing certain things in the lyrics and you're like, Oh, this like 
convoluted metaphor that you have to like peel back three or four layers to like understand where it comes from you're like oh that's not just poetry like that is a reflection of the person who wrote it like I guess now like that's that's the kind of blessing and curse of like having done like sociology in school is that like oh you get this broader perspective and you can go back and like dissect what like you know how the actual singer and person is reflected through their music and oh god i just yeah 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 i think i think there's a lot to say in that conversation too about deviance and how it's like it's a very seductive concept right it's like oh yeah i want to not care what people think about me i want to stick it to the man i want to be you know fly in the face of authority and all that kind of stuff because you know we all grow up and see ourselves as someone who is being stifled by the system and then Mm -hmm. You and then you grow up and you realize that yeah, some of that stuff was just awesome and countercultural and like like flies yeah. in the face of authority and that's great. And some of that stuff is like, no, nope, people were right to caution me about this. This is a little this is a little offside, some of these things that you're saying, and it's not just like, you know, it's it's genuinely harmful. It's not just sort of like against your puritanical worldview, it's like actually pretty shitty um yeah and it's i think the whole point of this movie and what i was saying about like the teen culture that's sort of represented in this movie is it's very hard as a young person to discern between the two and that's a level of nuance that maybe you only get with a certain level of emotional maturity that either comes with age or just Mm -hmm. maybe some people it's just naturally gifted to them um Mm -hmm. but it's it's very hard to tell when when something is like awesome and arch and and whether something is just like actually actually shitty um yeah you know who i'll say is like the opposite of the examples that we were talking about something that like never got any less cool as the years went on fucking green day green day really man like they every story i hear about them is just like they're still fucking awesome like because american idiot was all about like the bush administration right and and like yeah how fucked up a lot of the things that they were doing were there's stories about like so for billy joe armstrong is bisexual and like has always identified that way there was a time where they went on tour with an opening band who were like all out and gay and then Mm -hmm. like the crowd started like chanting slurs at them and stuff and like green day came out and we're like yeah you know like we're also queer right like you're if you're calling them that like that's us too that's that's who you're here to see so you know Mm -hmm. like fuck you there's also a great story like there's there's a video of it even where like there's a woman in the like front of a show getting like harassed by a dude and billy joe Mm -hmm. tells this dude like multiple times to leave her alone and then he keeps doing it so he like jumps off the stage and like double like rabbit kicks him in the face (laughs) which is like look we're yeah we're not condoning violence but still like pretty i don't know they've they're they're one of those acts that to me has always remained like at the pedestal that i put them on when i was young and that's you know that's rare <laughs> oh my god thank you green day thank you green day, bless uh, up, green day. thank you green day bless up bless yeah. up please stay beautiful and magic see this is why like i think this is why like queerness is so important mm. because like it removes one of those like blinders, I guess, to like the shittiness of society because like 
the moment you're queer, it like brings into question misogyny. Yeah. Because, mm. you know, like misogyny is against queerness. And like, if, if you're already questioning like your sexuality and heteronormativity, like that brings into question anything that like accompanies that, which like misogyny and the patriarchy. And like, as you start to like peel away those, blinders of like the world needs to be this way and this way and this way like it needs to be within these strict boundaries like there need to be these strict separations between like Mm -hmm. man and woman and like zero and one like these binary systems like you you i guess become like ahead of the times like politically like what is it politically correct wise you know Mm, like yeah yeah like yeah i i think it's interesting like the the point that you make of like uh we realize that like a lot of struggles are things that we have in common like you mentioned misogyny um and homophobia kind of go hand in hand there's other there's Mm -hmm. other elements too like you you know you start to learn your history of of like queer activism and and queer liberation and things Mm -hmm. and you realize that we're also very like obviously we're well linked to to uh, like queerness and transness are not the same thing but they're very mm. interlinked those those struggles right um yeah and and then you realize things like ableism also tie in the way that like oh yeah queerness is uh framed as like um a deficiency or a disability uh in mm-hmm. in some like homophobic rhetorics and then or like as a mental illness uh as, as transness yep. is too and then you realize that we're we're also in a league with the disability liberation movement. Like we, we all need to, you know, like that, that struggle is one in the same, we need to um, advocate for, and then, you know, through, through more and more, like you realize we're also in a league with, with, um, with like civil rights and like race uh, liberation and things like that. Like there's uh, Mm -hmm. all of these things become the same struggle. Once you realize that ultimately what we're fighting is, is, often capitalism um <laughs> yes <laughs> um but that's probably a, i mean that's probably a bigger conversation not suited for the tail end of a fucking podcast about jennifer's body <laughs> yeah <laughs> but like it, it really is all tied in together like yeah you know i like as as a like trans non-binary person like i always kind of come back to the realization that like I wouldn't be allowed to like exist as I am today if it weren't for black trans sex workers so like a lot of where like my activism has been like steering and like as I've you know learned what it is to be a trans person and like what my history is I'm like oh shit like part of you know supporting trans people is supporting sex workers as well right and supporting people of color right Mm -hmm. and supporting like the abolition of like racism and it's i it really is crazy how all of these things tie in together and essentially are asking for the same thing which is equal rights and recognition like and you know basic human respect absolutely that's all that's all we're all after yeah yeah just treat us like humans we're all we're all we all exist 
that's that's the core of it that's the fucking common denominator man like we all exist absolutely existence sucks and if you want to exist with us you should join our discord if you want to exist in slightly (laughs) closer proximity to us you know across the internet um we've got a discord community where you can join up we've got we've got uh discussion streams where we talk about you know all the different movies and eventually we'll probably talk about a book but movies are just kind of easier to handle they're kind of like popcorn you know you can just watch one and it's very easy to do anyway all the movies shows books in theory that we'll one day talk about we'll we'll be discussing those we've also got general chat where you can just talk about life talk about whatever news stories on your mind today talk about i don't know the weather. I don't give a shit. Use use the Discord for whatever you want. It's it's there for you. Um, yeah. And uh, before we wrap up, we should mention what our next topic is for next week's podcast. Yeah. So for next week, we have an a hopefully uh, excellent film. <laughs> we are going to be watching Killer Unicorn, which is a 2018 film directed by drew bolton and we're lucky because it features such characters as unicorn victim puppy pup and girlfriend so i i'm pretty excited for it i i found it by googling queer horror movie and it had unicorn in the title so i was like oh yeah this we are going into this knowing zero about it it's it's from 2018 and um it is is confirmed to be a horror lgbtq plus movie um we i think it looks very bad i i honestly don't know yes um but here's the thing it's got a 57 percent audience score on rotten tomatoes um Jennifer's body has a 45% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. What? So I guess we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to see whether we think it's 12% better than Jennifer's body. Um, but <laughs> Jennifer's body gets a 100% from me. So we, you know, we'll have to see. Yeah, that was solid. Um, just a quick description is a Brooklyn party boy is excited to go to a huge party event, but the night takes a turn when he is attacked by a stranger. A year later, he gives his social life a second chance, but a man wearing a unicorn mask is killing his friends one by one. So it's some sort of like gay slasher set in the New York party scene. Um, I'm excited to see what it's about. I I'm going in with low expectations, but that, you know, might set me up for a pleasant surprise. And if it's bad, then we'll have a shitty movie to talk about. And I'm stoked for that, too. Yeah, I I will say I have the highest expectations for this movie. (laughs) I mean, I hope it's like a drama club production where it's a slasher with lots of blood and someone's wearing a unicorn mask and there better be sparkles and glitter. That is what I want. I'm excited to get into it yeah. and to to crack open this uh, this little egg with you, Shannon. Um, oh, beautiful. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up this this one? Uh, I mean, I, I'll. Oh, damn it! I forgot. Like they they use the <laughs> the fucking term Jello. Yes. Uh, jello as jealous in the movie you're jello you're just lime green jello you're just lime green jello like i i say oh you jelly yeah but jello i really like jello as a term for jealousy absolutely that's it so like lime green jello yeah 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 
Beautiful. <laughs> I'm really glad we got that in. That was very important to stuff <laughs> in before the end there. So that's perfect. Very key. Um, yes. Everybody, thank you very much for listening. You can li- visit the link that we have posted in the description of this episode to go to our link tree. That'll take you to our socials and our Discord server where you have full license to be our friend. And if you've got good takes on the movies that we watch or bad takes, we'll put them in the podcast. So come, come be a part of the community with us. We're thriving. We're growing. We are small but mighty. Um, and we're, we're thrilled to be part of this with all of you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Have a, have a great week, everybody. Take care. Goodbye. Mwah.